brought to you by Combat Flip Flops. Bad for running and even worse for fighting. Combat Flip Flops are your ticket to the unarmed forces by providing you with the military-inspired quality footwear for men and women. Be sure to enter the code UNITY at checkout to help support the podcast. And in support of women in developing countries, head over to CombatFlipFlops.com and become part of their unarmed forces today. And by Beneath. Starting with the first thing that you put on in the morning, Beneath inspires you to be your most authentic self. Get ready to experience increased comfort that radically outperforms anything that you've tried before while leaving minimal impact on Mother Earth. Use the code UNITY to get 15% off at checkout at Beneath.com. That's B-N-3-T-H.com. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the podcast. I am here with a, wow, just more of a what I would consider like a great human being that just continues to give back on a level that I can only hope to match one day. Please welcome. I'm really excited. Sorry, Stacey Bear. <laughs> he is the founder of Happy Grizzly, Adventure Not War, overall badass, dope-ass skier. And he is a guy that is not only educated. Gotta gotta say though, buddy, you got a great beard. Thanks. It's It's not as good as it normally is because... I haven't been going to my barber, so I'm okay. missing like it's too round. My daughter hates it, so I'm looking forward to getting back to the barber and getting it fuller and Just thicker. Thick, we like yeah. thick, thick with two C's. That's what I want to see on your face. Yeah, I'm a thick boy, B O I. I don't know if you know that. Shout out to somebody I I've never met, but thick boy mountain biking. I love that whole concept of Clydesdales on bikes. Because that's certainly me. So I, I got to get the thick beard to match the thick boy here. I like it. I, I appreciate the, uh, the intensity already. I've um, been introduced to you by a mutual friend named Griff. Yeah. Who runs Combat Flip Flops. And in, in my journey of somehow involving myself with that weirdo, I have gained great perspective in having conversations with people outside of my community that I, well, I guess I thought were outside of my community, but really I'm just starting to realize they're just Americans that are trying to all do the same thing that I'm trying to do. And that is get people to pay attention to what the hell is going on with our veterans, educate people, help with trauma, and just give people tools to better themselves. And so I'm just really glad that the more people he keeps introducing me to, they happen to be very well-rounded people that I am super stoked to have on our show. Nice. Well, if you meet any of those people, I'd love to connect with them because please. it's really nice. You know, I think when you're going through it and you're doing the work, it's I mean, it's wonderful to hear those nice things. And like I'm, I always say, like, you know, you know, print those out at the emails that I keep on the refrigerator to remind myself right. of the impact I'm having, because I think a lot of times when you're in it, you don't see it. And I think there's that dangerous line, like, when are you doing good work? And then when do you become Adam Newman? Right. I mean, <laughs> And so I think figuring out how to keep ourselves humble and engaged in the mission and vicious about the mission is the big challenge. And then also paid by the mission, right? Because I think a lot of folks, you know, if you've been in the military or if you've been an EMT, a firefighter, if you've been a teacher, a nurse, you're used to doing this work with such minimal resources because you had minimal resources when you're in the field, right? When you're doing the work. And so I think when you transition out and then you start working around engaging in trauma or taking those lessons to a broader community, we just continue to underfund and undervalue ourselves. And, and that I think is the biggest challenge I've faced. And now this year and in these coming years, I think that's the gap I've got to leap. 
Jesus, man, you really put a lot of pressure on yourself in a way that I think is would be for most people all consuming and drowning. You you have this idea of wanting to help so many and you are coming at it from so many different angles and you're also coming at it with having experienced it yourself. And so when you're talking about being in the thick of it and being in it and you know, over sometimes you have to do certain things to keep yourself wanting to push forward in this mission. Um, really with you, what I find fascinating is that it almost feels like it takes someone who has experienced it personally to then be able to do the work that you're doing and be as passionate on a continuous basis. Um, most people who experience trauma that I know, it seems like they end up going into some type of profession and or charity work that is happened to them. And I, I wonder if that's, um, I, I just wonder if it feels like that's the only way it's ever going to be fixed. Sometimes. Negative. I wonder if it takes pe people who have been hurt to be able to actually fix people. And it just feels like there's not enough of that. So I, I'm curious about that. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really, yes, I, I think so. I think the other thing though, is that if there has been, you know, it's like, I try to mine all the silver linings I can find because it's been a cloudy right. existence, right? And it's been a pretty cloudy year. And I'm in a privileged position to be able to not just get rained on, but to look for those silver linings. And I think one of the gifts that post-traumatic stress has given me, you know, when you dig through all the visceral blood and guts and tears and substance abuse and suicidal ideation and broken relationships along the way, if you can just get through that, you know, the little gifts that I got was unwrapping this little package and realizing that so much of my trauma was related to developmental trauma. And that what the impact trauma of my experiences at war really did was disallow me from continuing the assumed habits and practices that I had used growing up and moving into my early 20s just to deal with the everyday trauma. And then being able to move to a place of looking at the multi-generational trauma of my own family and however far back it stretches and coming to the conclusion that at some level, we're all we're all hurt we're all deeply right. hurt and how then do we move forward so i think i think that's where i come at it from is is yes i have post-traumatic stress i likely had some adjustment disorder issues i've had substance abuse depression mass anxiety which i still struggle with but it's also this kind of freeing sense of like i'm not that unique and right. but in a really lovely way so mm -hmm. how do we work together to figure that out and i think we as veterans have an outstanding opportunity to say this is what's working in our community this is what's working and we came from your community we are of you especially in canada and the united states with voluntary militaries we came from you so let's go back to you and let's share what we've learned in the wars that you sent us to. I, it, what I find frustrating from that is I, I love the perspective that you come at it from. I think it's really important when you're talking about working with um, other groups to broaden the topic conversation within the civilian population. 
I think it it's admirable. I think what I find most frustrating though is when you come back to the civilian population, we are of you, we, we do these things for you, but somehow there's such, um, such a really pathetic way that the governments look after the people. And so I, I, I love your optimism and I love the way that you speak about your PTSD because I think, well, I hate saying D because it's stupid. It's not, it's not a disorder. So right, very, very few things so, are disordered, right? That's right, correct. So, I, and I'm so, and here's, that's the, here, here's one of those things being Canadian, that's all that was drilled into my head. So I'm like working on breaking that habit for myself because it's not, I wasn't diagnosed with PTSD. I'm not a disorder. I'm, it was an injury that, that can be worked on and can be hopefully gotten to a point that allows progression. So my apologies. But with that, um, it's very difficult to watch the way that when we do come home, when we do try to explain this to civilian population, often how it's met and the type of hostility it's met with. And that's really infuriating to see. Um, we we were talking about this before before we started recording and i'm going to bring it up early and i'll tell you why because it brings me to one of my topics so the perception of the canadian military in your eyes and the reason i wanted to jump into this was because i was thinking i'm not sure if you remember or you had seen but there was a town hall incident where when trudeau was running recently um a, a veteran an afghan veteran stood up and said hey like I have been trying and applying to get a prosthetic, a new prosthetic for my leg and I cannot get through veterans affairs is backed up. Um, I, you know, I'm really in a lot of pain, like all of these, you know, uh, laid out this whole situation and he straight looked at him and said, we just don't have any more to give. Yeah. And I think the perception of the Canadian military, I have some connections to Canada. I grew up in South Dakota. I went to college in Mississippi and all my buddies at college told me that I was from the Southern Canadian Peninsula, right? That the, Dakotas, the Dakotas were a government hoax. Even to the point I used to wave this Canadian flag. And uh, there's a funny story about this girl coming up to me and being like, oh, you're from Canada. And I was like, yeah. She's like, where? I was like, Manitoba, right? Because that's closest to South Dakota. And, <laughs> She was like, where in Manitoba? I was like, Winnipeg. And she's like, me too, what high school? And I was like, central. Oh, and she's no. like, there's no central high school. So who knew that the University of Mississippi recruited volleyball players from Canada and specifically wow. from the largest Canadian metropolitan closest to my hometown. But I served with the Canadian military in 0304 in Bosnia, Sarajevo. Uh, I ran into some different Canadians throughout my career and doing different things. And we worked really closely in Bosnia through um, counterterrorism work with the Canadians. And what I learned was just how heavily deployed the Canadian military was. So during Clinton's second term, and I have a, there's a quote where he was asked, should the United States have a peacekeeping force? And he said, we don't need to, we've got Canada. Correct. And Canada has been, the military is a very hidden part of Canada. There's not, there's not a lot of light on the Canadian military and there's not a lot of understanding of the incredible good that Canadian service members are doing on a daily basis around the world, right? It's not covered in international press. It's not covered in your national press and we certainly don't cover it, right? No, absolutely and, not. <laughs> no. And um, we're, we're like hockey, maple syrup, you know, and even like with what happened um, with the former mayor of Toronto, 
as somebody who's experienced substance abuse was really difficult to watch, right? And same thing with Hunter Biden, right? And people mocking and openly mocking substance abuse. And it's like, these are systemic challenges. These are social issues. And how do we, how do we address these with some compassion? And because in the veteran community, at least in the United States, there has been a lot more compassion around substance abuse issues. And I think with Canada, it sucks because it's like when the Canadian, what people don't realize is that we not only live in these democracies and our, the people who vote for our parliamentarians, our Congress and our Senate are the ones who are sending us off to war. And if somebody says, well, we don't have any more to give, it's like, well, why not? Because you certainly had enough to send me for a year of my life or two years or three years or 16 years or 20 years of my life. And it was in 2007, I believe that when I was in Iraq and I found out that one of my Canadian colleagues had died by suicide and it was just never being home. Like he, um, at the end felt like he wasn't even Canadian. He put on the Canadian uniform, but he just hadn't spent enough time in Canada to connect with his family and his community who was there. And at some point felt like he could just never go home again and made the difficult decision to take his life. And that was honestly my first experience with uh, a soldier who had deployed, who died by suicide was through the Canadian military. And I think when you go back as far as General Romeo Dallaire and what happened with Rwanda, when the Canadian government nor the United Nations took seriously what he was talking about and happening in Rwanda. And, and then we saw the same damn thing happen in Bosnia, right? And so often in low-grade conflicts around the world, and uh, this is a podcast, so nobody could see my air quotes around the Oh, yeah, he's conflicts. also, sorry, I'm so, like, perplexed, and I'm just in awe of this conversation. I forgot to let you know he's air quoting real hard. Continue. Yeah, I air quote hard. So with low-grade conflicts, the Canadian military has been there. And so I also think the Canadian military was not properly prepared for high-volume conflicts like Afghanistan and Iraq after having done these other things and not having the resources necessary because a low guide conflict, it doesn't, it, it's not like the bullets fly at half speed, right? <laughs> or, well, they still hit you just as effectively. Right. And, and, and you still, you know, I think about what Dallaire and the UN troops witnessed in Rwanda. I think about what happened at Srebrenica. I think about what happens in locations all over the world. And it's fucked. It's like, well, we don't have anything more to give. And it's like, well, what incentive does that service member have to continue living if the people of his country tell him we have nothing left to give? Because a, we are expected to leave it all on the battlefield. And for what? Oh, for absolutely fucking nothing. And that is where I become enraged, enraged at a level that is very difficult to describe when this guy said that it's like you watched you watched part of him it hit him like all over again the person that is running the country that is instructed with your life that gives you are a number you are a you are a human being in everyone else's eyes but as soon as you drop into the military you are a number and when that number is no longer useful they medically discharge you or kick you out and then they leave you to figure out your own new social norms and your own new psychological norms and they don't and when you do finally go to them for help they look at you with almost pity in a sense, because you are now either unemployed or you're struggling with an abuse or 
a type of a, a type of addiction, whether it be alcohol or alcohol or drug abuse, then you are most likely, most of these guys that I know were homeless at some point. There's, if they didn't have a wife or a spouse or somebody else to come home to or a supportive family of some type, or they've happened to just circumstantially fallen into um, a drug abuse situation, they're left homeless. And so when the person at the very top, it's, it's almost like giving permission for the rest of the country to go, well, he's telling him right to his face on live television, he has no more to give. So it gives this person, give this um, this view to the public that okay, well, if he says there's no more given, obviously there's nothing else we can do. So why bother? Yeah, I mean, and in the, in the states, right, we put people on pedestals and then we don't want them to come down. So uh, Mike Richter has been a pretty good friend over the years. You want a Stanley Cup with the New York Rangers? I'm a Flyers fan, so it's been really hard to be friends with Mike okay. because he's a Ranger. And um, I can understand. Yeah, not an army ranger, a New York, worse, a New York. Even ranger, worse, and even New worse. Ranger. Right. Um, at least he's not an islander. Anyway, the. Oh, we're going on tangents now. I can. Yeah, the hockey will get me there. But, um, you know, one of the things we've talked a lot about is when you live a life in a uniform, whether it's a military uniform, a professional sports uniform, a prison uniform, when you live a life in a uniform, people are interested in who you were. They're not interested in who you are or want to be. They want to hear the stories because so few people get to be at the level that we are, right? I remember in sixth grade, I wrote, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I wrote, I want to be a professional athlete. And imagine if we took the idea of being a soldier, sailor, marine, airman, and recognize that that is a professional athlete, right? The amount of training, the amount of physical fitness, the amount of work that goes into that. And it was other friends of mine who did become professional athletes who were like, you're doing as much as I am, you're working as hard as I am, but the pay is really different. But the treatment in many ways is similar when we're done. And it's, and it's, you're done, you're back. Maybe I'll put you on a pedestal. I'll call you up for a parade, but I'm not that interested in figuring out where you want to go. And mm-hmm. it's, and the more I think about it and the older I get, and during the pandemic, you know, as somebody who made his the last few years of my career and speaking engagements and leading trips, the pandemic shut all that down. I was driving a forklift for most of the pandemic, right? And had a lot of time to think about what was happening, what was going on. And for the first time in a long time, I was back at that basic private level, right? I've been an officer in the army, but you know, you're driving a forklift and you might as well be an E3 or an E2. Right. And I've come to this sickening realization that I'm sure lots of people have come before me. And I'm sure it's pretty apparent if I had opened my eyes earlier, there is a disdain there's a deep disdain in the West for people who do the work. Oh, 150%. If you administer the work, if you coach the work, if you market the work, even if you sell the work, that is what we highlight. But heaven forbid somebody get fairly compensated or taken care of for putting their body on the line. And I think when we look at a young man or woman who's an amputee and says, where do I need? There is without a doubt, like you said, that pity or that dismissal of, 
if you're dumb enough to use your body in right. such a way, I can't help you. And it is infuriating. It is. You're, yeah. It's or, and the flip side of that is when people say, well, I use the army to create an opportunity and move out to do X, Y, Z. I'm now at a point where I'm like, well, why is the army the only way that we're creating people, giving people these opportunities to find a way to crawl up a ladder? What is it about military service that is the way or the only acceptable government funded opportunity or jobs program for so many of us? Why can't there be more than that? And for years, when I talked about the power of the outdoors, and I'm very proud of my service. I'm proud of the people I've met. I'm proud mm -hmm. of what I did in the military, but I have to hold that, Kelsey, separate from how the military was used. I have to think about the micro communities that I was involved in and the commitment to one another that those men and women had. Because when I think about how those communities were used broadly, I really struggle. Like with the pullout of Afghanistan, the fuck were we doing then? I had three different commanders and three different missions in one year in Iraq from global war on terror to, oh, finding weapons of mass destruction to global war on terror yeah. to rebuilding democracy. And you come home and you know, people are like, well, what do you, you're pro-war. I'm like, fuck, no, I'm not pro-war. I'm pro the people I served with and the people right. I met in Iraq. And they're like, oh, are you not patriotic? And I'm like, well, which, what do you think I was doing there? You know, it's like, thank you for your service. Well, what part of my service are you thankful for? And I don't always ask these questions because I don't have the time. I don't want to get into it. I don't want to hurt myself or open myself up to that trauma again. But it's like, what, you know, like a couple of years ago, was at a basketball game and the coach, it was like military appreciation at the basketball yeah. game, right? And the coach mm -hmm. is like, I want to thank all the service members in the audience. We couldn't play basketball here if it wasn't for you. And I, like, I think about that a lot because I'm trying to remember, I, maybe it's a TBI, but you know, Kelsey, yeah. I never remember like getting in a stack formation to get ready through a door and being like, Sergeant Church, Vasquez, we're doing this for Pac-12 basketball, right? College yeah. basketball. I'm the kind of three kicking down the door, you know, like, oh. no, it's not happening. That's not how things work. Right. And so I, I think it, it's thinking through all those things, but these are painful, difficult conversations that not a lot of people ever have to have and they don't want to have them. And so we don't. And and it and it's just like oh well you know it's just Kelsey and Stacy bitching on a podcast and it's like no we're not I, so. I want people to know that they have a role to play in all of this and that veterans have a role to play in the health and success of our countries and finding ways to lift us up is only going to lift the rest of the fucking country up. Well, what I don't understand is when you see a veteran, what you're most likely going to get out of that veteran, if they were lucky enough to walk out unscathed or have mental scars, physical scars, is you're often going to get somebody that feels or has a drive enough that they can go accomplish anything else that they try to do. And so you've got a hard workforce. You've got people that are disciplined. You've got, well, for the, I mean, most 
most people that leave the military are disciplined on some way, shape, Solid or form. 60 to 80 percent of us. It's fine. It's fine. Don't worry about how many. But you're going to get a force that could be used in such a successful way to the, for the growth and the, the economic growth of the country if you were just see them for what they are instead of what you think they are. Because right. everyone has this perception of the war and it's like it goes back to what you said you're like i'm pro for the guys i worked with i'm pro for the people that i kicked the door down but at the same time you have to look at it with fresh eyes and i really do love the way you look at it it's completely different than most people i speak with not not in the sense that it's unpatriotic or anything like that but in the sense that you look at it for what it is and not the emotion behind it i love the way you just described thank you for your service because that irritates me i have a hard time with that i really do yeah i i've come to the point you know watching i have an uncle who was in vietnam and i think what happened after the for in the post 9-11 and it's so funny we talk about the post 9-11 generation but now there's like two or three generations right it's been 20 years so so insane to me when you say that right right so the but you know i think people wanted to do so badly wanted to do the right thing because vietnam went so wrong and the korean war was just forgotten about that people tried to do so much and doing something doesn't always equate to the right thing. Right. I mean, you, you, you know, you, you have a kid, right. It's like when the kid's doing something, they think they're doing the right thing. You don't want to yell at them because you want them, you want your child to hold on to that good impulse, but then you have to direct that energy. And I think it's been so hard to direct that energy because people said, well, you're just saying that you don't care. You don't love veterans or, or what are you doing? Right. And one of my no, friends who so far from the truth, right. And a good friend of mine who he talks about patriotic correctness, right. And this idea, like if, if you don't like political correctness, wait till you get to patriotic correctness because, wait. right. And it's that thing of like, well, why didn't you say thank you for your service? Or, you know, I mean, you know, and it's like in America, you know, I'm sure you, I don't know if you have this in Canada as well, but like all the camouflaged crap that sports teams sell. Because oh it, yeah, yeah, that digital, yeah, because they 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 switch it all in the hockey. Did you see a lot of the hockey teams? They have the digital camo, like right. they have the the green. I'm like, just throw up. You're you don't just do that, right? And it's and it's like, and where do the you know it's it's making money for the NHL. It's making money for Major League Baseball, and it makes us feel better about being American. And camouflage is a great fashion statement, but. I think they do it in other arbitrary sports that may not seem that big. Like they do it in supercross. I don't know if you know much right. about yeah. yeah, my husband used to race professionally. So I, I, I used to go to the races and they have the military appreciation and all the bikes get all graphicked out and all digital camo. Everybody at the track, they bring the service members down on to the, they bring them down on the track. They do the big flag. It's such a like song and pony dance. Right. And on the it's one hand, I appreciate the, initiative behind a lot of people but on the other hand it's like yeah and then but that's the thing right it's like well we did we gave you all we had we gave you free tickets to the supercross yeah you get a discount to nhl tickets so you know on remembrance day you you get your free blooming onion and and like move on and well then let us move on and in some ways let us move on by not putting us on a pedestal during those days Right. And by engaging in your community and by using the things people are like, oh, you know, if it weren't for you, we wouldn't have these rights. Well, then go engage with somebody who has a different opinion with you and listen right. and try to compassionately understand where they're coming from and see if you can't create that. 
and protect your public lands and protect your public waterways and engage in that way and create those opportunities for honest gratitude that also helps people and say, yeah, like you serve for this war and, and we're not, you know, and it's, Hey, like you went to, you went and fought for our country and I don't really understand what that was about because I didn't understand or necessarily agree with the war, but I recognize that you made a sacrifice and went forward to the country. If we ever get to the point, I'd love to hear your experiences, but that's not my question to ask you. Here's what I can offer or, or here's how I would like to engage with you or here's, you know, is this information that can help you move forward? Or I recognize that as a warrior, you likely have these experiences and can I help build upon them? And they're difficult, nuanced conversations. And they're not binary, right? I mean, how many times are you like, oh, I'm a veteran. How many times have people, how many times have people said, but you're a girl? Oh, I, oh, I love that. When people find out what trade I was, yeah, but yeah, but you're the same size as the, wait, you're a woman? You're a, you guys, you guys have that all the time. Right. Or, oh, were you a military spouse? Oh, no, I've never gotten that. I've got, oh, oh how many people have you killed? That's what I've right. got. That needs yeah. to fucking stop. Right. Uh, really, really, <laughs> the, the, I haven't, I don't know if I've said that this is probably the first time this is on a podcast. So, oh, first I love time, it. So, so thanks, my, my, my first nonprofit was Veterans Expeditions, and we are standing in a parking lot. Rocky Mountain National Park. Oh no. And this, somebody comes up and says, Who are you all? And sees some of the accoutrement and oh, are you veterans or whatever? And, yeah, we're veterans. What are you doing? Oh, we're gonna we're doing a little bit of training and then we're gonna go hike this big peak on 9-11. Oh, you're all veterans, huh? And the guy goes, Have have you ever killed anybody? He asked oh, to the my group. God. He asked a group of people, not even and this one. other veteran who's with us who I've known forever turns and looks at the guy. And he goes, hey, you ever suck a dick to save your life? And it's just silence, right? And the guy's like, that is the most inappropriate question I've heard. And Amir goes, you mean it's the second most inappropriate question you've heard? Wow. And, and the guy just like turned and walked away and we all just kind of chuckled like nobody really even said anything like later on as people were hiking somebody would just like say it because it is it's a horribly horribly inappropriate question right yeah. but in that moment he didn't know how else to respond right to that question yeah and and no one should like that's the thing he's proving a point he's doing it so so effectively i love that i that is i'm sorry but it's about time somebody asks a question like that back to somebody because it comes when they ask it, it's often so off the cuff and with so just, hey, hey, hey. Like it's so just demoralizing the way they just think that they have permission to ask another human being that. Right. And and I think, and, and that's the challenge, right? Is, is that it's always up to the veteran. It's always up to, or, or any situation where somebody is in a position of, marginalization it's always on the individual who is in that marginalized position in a position of who's lacking power and status and stature it's always up to them to rise above the situation 
right? It's, right. it's and otherwise they're just, it's another angry veteran. It's another this, it's another that. Mm-hmm. And I think the hard part around that is that in the United States, veterans have, on the one hand, there's a lot of privilege veterans get, but that privilege comes at this really strange cost, right? Of, of, of how you're treated. And it's like, I've given you the free tickets and I'm wearing the digi camo. What more do you want from me? Mm-hmm. You know, like, and I'm giving you the veterans day parade. And now, now what more do you want? And it's like, I don't even necessarily want that. I don't want that. I want to be able right. to come home and that my community acknowledge that they sent me to this war and that I'm coming home and that the community has a role and responsibility in helping me integrate the trauma and challenges I had and finding the strength in that and moving forward. That's what I want. And the further I've gotten from my military service, the more of an advantage it's been. Because now that I'm on the backside of trauma and substance abuse, and I've been on long, in long-term recovery for 10 years, it's an interesting social capital for people to bring up or talk about. Mm-hmm. But when it was right in it, and, and, and I've ha- I had some amazing, still have some amazing, amazing non-veteran friends who've just been really incredible in engaging with me on a human to human level. And a lot of those people were going through, when I met them, were going through really big shit in their own lives you know, that were changing their identity and they were trying to figure out who they were. People who dropped out of PhD programs, people who are coming out of the closet, people who are coming to terms and grips with uh, a gender transition, all these things, right? And it's like, oh, I I, I can get you because you're trying to figure out how the fuck to live in this world because the the operating system that you used no longer works. Right. And so it's like, my situation is very different, but there's a lot of similarities to it. And we're going to honor those differences and figure out how to move forward together. And um, I just think the rest of the broader society hasn't seen that because people don't want you to change. Change is frightening. Change is terrifying. And that's another thing you, when you change, if you change too much, there is a point where the veteran community also can fluctuate on its feelings about you. Right. Because you were this person and we knew how to work with you and relate to you and identify and engage with you and you fit the stereotype or persona that we needed and wanted at that time. But because of that work that you've done, you are now growing and, you know, intellectual flexibility is what makes us human, right? The ability to bring in new information, adapt and change. And yet that's the thing that we're most frightened of. And I've certainly felt that. And I've certainly been told by individuals that I'm a traitor because I'm not working with veterans full-time anymore or that I don't understand or I didn't really have these problems or challenges because if I did, why would I say this? And, and I can understand and appreciate that because I don't know, I try to be really empathetic to that because I oftentimes think what would 2007 Stacy say to 2021 Stacy? Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of 2007 to 2013 Stacey that would be like, fuck you, you don't know what you're talking about. Right. And I think if I met 2007 Stacey, I'd be like, all right, here's some information, take it. But if you don't want to use it, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But good luck 
try and try and give a little more grace to yourself and a little more grace to other people and dial down the hate, but I'm never going to tell you that your emotions are wrong. How you deal with them might be, or might be a challenge, not wrong, might be challenged, might be incorrect, I guess. So yeah, wrong, but that you have those emotions. That's all right. When you look back at yourself, like truthfully, when you look back at yourself, you've got to feel some type of, I don't know if even pride is the right word I'm looking for. And just in your ability to see that growth, how, how often have you been ever told maybe by a doctor or a treatment facility or even psychologist, psychiatrist around you, have you ever been told, well, look how far you've come? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, my, my business partner for Happy Grizzly is a guy named Kurash Rasek, Kurash Rasek. And he moved to this country when he was 11 or 12 to the United States uh, because of the Islamic revolution in Iran. And he is a full-time, you know, I mean, that's his job, right? As a, as a therapist. And it's funny being in a business relationship with a therapist, right? Because <laughs> any, any work call is always going to be a little bit of therapy. And he's been a phenomenal, phenomenal partner. We come at our challenges and our substance abuse and our suicidal ideations from two really, really different places, but have found a lot in that, again, to, to compare, to contrast and to hold on to. And yeah, I mean, I look back and I think about how far I've been able to come. And, and I think the thing I think I'm proudest about is now my ability to be able to continue to deal with and engage around failure and missteps and mistakes and the grace to let that shit go. I think that's incredibly, incredibly important. Uh, that's one of the biggest things I know most veterans in the community, at least that I've been interacting with on a regular, semi-regular basis, whether it be um, from charity groups or different type of outreach work or things along those lines. Um, that's one of the biggest things I feel like we don't do early on. And it's, I don't know if for lack of not knowing how, or you're so much in the thick of it that you can't give yourself that grace or that space, or you can't just be calmer on yourself because you're so, you're so in it. And I know exactly what you're talking about. I notice it when you speak with, you can see different veterans at different stages in their healing process and not just in their healing, but also in the way that they're educating and slowly learning what's going on with themselves, the further they get along. And it's interesting to talk with these different vets and see how they would talk to themselves. And I, I really find it fascinating the way you, you, you talk about letting go, because that almost seems like a common thread within the PTS, uh, any of the soldiers, even first responders, like police, um, fire paramedic, that's almost seems like a common thread is we're so in things, we can't let things go. And it almost makes it harder on ourselves to get past any of that trauma. I just wonder if maybe there's a way to help, help, help prevent early on, maybe a type of program or education within the military before deployments, these types of things, better, better ways to equip our people mentally, rather than just with all of these fancy pieces of equipment. I know when I served with the Americans, a very good friend of mine who actually passed away on his last tour, uh, the one after I deployed with him on, we, he had an addiction to like soda, cans of soda, yeah. right? So in the fob that I was at, you guys were not allowed soda. I mm. said, you guys, because you're you guys. And um, 
he had such an abundance of Oakley's from just the military giving him so much shit. I would trade him cans of Coke for Oakley's. And that to me boggles my brain. We do so much to equip these people or the United States does so much to equip these people and just throw equipment in some circumstances, not all units are equipped the same, but um, no, not for sure. But in some circumstances, these guys are equipped heavily with incredible gear, but we do so little and put so little attention on educating and getting our soldiers mentally ready and stable so that if they do encounter have the situations they have when they come home, it makes it that much harder because we don't have any tools. Most of us walk in right out of high school yeah. and we have no goddamn idea how to, how to rationalize or wrap our head around some of the things that we've seen or done. And then we expect, we expect everyone to just get better quickly when you get home. So like, for example, I don't know what it's like for you guys in the States, but up here we have this really horrible company called Manulife and I call them out because they sent private investigators after me um, because they, when I was in my building, this place, I don't take a paycheck from because I'm not here all the time because I'm here when I'm here and I do the work that I do when I can do it. And it's an insurance company that's hired by Veterans Affairs and they handle reintegration payment and schooling. And they have a program called CISIP. And then after CISIP, you, once you're done your types of schooling, you kick over to if you're deemed long-term disabled. So because of social media and my perception in the media, I look like I'm absolutely fucking murdering it. That's not true. That's not how it works. That's not how PTS works. That's not how someone who's going through healing and trauma and all of those types of things, that's not how it works. And so when we say, we're not going to give you the tools we're not going to educate you and hopefully give you some sort of mental padding before you go into the shit show you're about to walk into. And then when we come home, we rush you off to a, to a system like Manulife, who is an insurance company who does nothing but make things difficult for people when they're trying to heal. And then you expect them to just heal quickly, move on and reintegrate into society with no issue. It, I just don't, I don't quite, don't quite yeah. understand. <laughs> why we can't equip people. Well, there, there's a lot there. I mean, and I think it's, th this goes back to why I think for me, as I've gone forward in my healing and coming back and figure out who I am is that who I am is different than who I was, right? And I right. think even four years, two years, one year in the military, you wanna come back and we wanna get back to the life we were living before we deployed, <laughs> before we left. And that's not real, right? That's not a reality that's gonna be there. and. I think there's a few things that, that go into that. One is then when you go to the military or manual life or the VA system, and this is starting to change in pockets in the US, you can't acknowledge that you had any other problems prior to your military service. Otherwise, they're going to boot you, right? And you don't You're get right. the funding you in the need. But the training and the focus around the trauma is focused on specific impact trauma to the point where when I came home and I started filling out my paperwork, I was asked, which American service member I had witnessed who had died and what Sorry? was their rank and social security number. And what that means is, is that me witnessing a dog eating the neck out of a dead Iraqi is not something that's supposed to disturb me because it's an Iraqi. It means that me witnessing trying to pull off gauze around a young girl who had 95% of her body covered in third degree burns, 
they hadn't replaced the gauze in time, the skin had begun to grow and heal over it while the skin underneath it was necrotizing. And we had to try and peel that off. That's not supposed to give me trauma. It doesn't recognize that my unit, even though we're civil affairs and we drive around by day, for example, to make all the people try and feel better who got their doors kicked in by Griff at night, uh, that well, so we can't now. We don't that, know. It's all Griff now. That, well, now. no, Griff was. We were. I know, but he was, and we were at different different places and times in Iraq. But, but it was definitely Griff. Yeah, definitely Griff. So we move through the battlefield differently than other units, and so we're responding to other units. So as I'm responding, for example, to an EOD accident on base, I'm not taking the time as I have my knees jammed into two femoral arteries to write down the individual's name and rank, right? And so it's so difficult. And then if I cop to having some developmental trauma or challenges or things that happened in between military service or while I was home on leave, well, it's not our fault anymore. You certainly have this, but it's not on us. And so I think going into, and there's a lot of data that suggests people who do have developmental trauma will join the military. And I think what's hard about that is that people are then like, well, are you blaming the parents? I'm not blaming my parents. My parents didn't have the skills necessary either for a lot of the challenges they went through, right? And they did the best they could. Mm-hmm. It just, sometimes the best you can do is still going to inflict harm on small people and the right. and children, right? And so when you're 18 or 19 or 20 or 21 or 22, and then you deploy, A, you still have all that shit from growing up, whatever it looked like, and people respond to things really differently, um, right? So we're not, you and I aren't going to respond the same way to the same issue. And then B, there's a part of us that matures so much faster than the rest of our non-military community, right? Like we see a lot in a year of deployment that other people, it might take 80 years to have those experiences. But so part of us ages, but the rest of us, I don't know how to eat. I don't know how to make a meal. I don't know how mm-hmm. to regulate myself beyond a two-week break in service because I didn't have to regulate myself. I just got to throw down and party hard. And yeah. then I went back in and I was taken care of. And so none of that stuff happens, right? And we're not allowed to make the same mistakes that a lot of our non-veteran colleagues make in those same ages, right? Because we also have this weight of wisdom that's not buoyed by a weight of experience or practical engagement. And I think those are the things that are difficult to, how do we come in and figure that stuff out? So we're the ones who are telling our community of veterans to have grace. And I don't, and I think the challenge is, is that grace is not often extended back to us. And that's when it becomes really difficult. And that's where I think a lot of the rage and the anger and the frustration come into because when people say, thank you for your service. And if I'm having a really bad day, I wanna go, tell me about your gratitude me tearing apart a little girl's skin tell why are you grateful for that why are you thankful that i went and did that for you and what are they going to say fucking crazy veteran mm-hmm. get some help motherfucker and i'm like oh 
I got some help. I got free blooming onion last year and free oil change on Veterans Day. So you're fucking welcome. Where's your grace? You sent me to goddamn war. I signed up. I signed up because I believed you would vote correctly to take care of me. And that's where the challenge really comes in is because you start saying that and people are like, oh, you don't love America. You're not a patriot. You're all fucked up. And it's like, no, I love America. I love America so much. I can see its potential. And I know what we can do to make this country even better. It's like being a Philadelphia Flyers fan in the sense of I can love the Flyers and want them to draft better players and run a better offense. Mm -hmm. But when I extrapolate that back out to my country, people are like, well, love it or leave it. Oh, tell me more about that. Because I did love it so much that I was asked to leave it to dress up with an American flag every day on my, on my shoulder. And where do I go? And there aren't any easy answers. And rather than that excite us because complex problems are what motivated most of us as children to figure out these complex problems of the games we played in the forest behind our houses. Now we have complex problems and people don't want to deal. And that maybe more than anything, I, I appreciate this conversation because I didn't realize how, where some of that bitterness still laid. Um, but we have to engage. We have to engage with these complex challenges and realize that multiple truths can be correct, even if they seem contradictory. And if that's, if there's anything I learned from the military, that's probably what it was. Is that multiple truths that feel contradictory can all be correct. Jesus fuck, Stacy. My God, buddy. You're not wrong. There's there's a lot there. There's I'm number one, I'm glad that if that felt like you could have that conversation and you didn't realize there was something there. I'm glad that you're able to discover that. That's yeah. awesome. That's fucking awesome. That makes me happy. High five to that, buddy. Yeah, we should. Uh, maybe we can conference call in uh, my, our, our therapists. Yeah, right. Oh, my God. You would love my doctor. You guys would be bros. He would be so excited to chat with you. Oh, my God. Um, you know, first off, I'm not even going to say I'm, well, I'm going to say it, but you know what I mean when I say, I'm sorry that that ever had to be part of your story and something that anybody ever had to go through or witness. And I do agree with you when you bring up everything the way that you do when it comes to your service. There's been so many times when I've spoken with vets and had these conversations myself with civilian population. Um, they want, they almost want to hear the, the worst of the worst. Part of them wants to hear the graphicness that you can bring in the feeling and an emotion to a situation. It's like they almost, they're getting what they want out of you. They're, but then they don't have to be accountable for the reactions and their mm -mm. thought process afterward. And what that does and the ramifications of that response to someone who just told you the worst thing in their life. Um, the accountability factor needs to change. And when people say that to you, that you're not patriotic, you're unpatriotic, that you love it or leave it, 
that's just uneducated individuals. And the, the, the thing with that is, I don't know because your position was different being an officer. I didn't know what the fuck we were doing or why we were doing it. I wasn't told anything. So when it came time to go do those things and afterwards looking back at those and somebody asks me, what did you do over there? Or why did you do it? I struggle with that. I struggle with being able to respond with an appropriate answer. It doesn't cause anger to come out because if I tell you how I really feel about being over there and the people over there, and that is one piece of one time in one soldier's mind and never getting to experience the rest of the country or seeing what it is, you're going to look at me like I'm a sociopathic serial killer that should be locked up somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, and that's where, you know, and I, I still believe in, the importance of a strong national defense and a strong standing military. I think those things are all important. I think being honest about why we're going is important. I think from a human perspective, we've long been enamored by, you know, Odysseus and the hero's journey and all that, which I have come to believe is bullshit. And part of it is because we never dig beyond, right? Like Odysseus comes home and nobody ever asks him what happened to the 12 ships full of men. Like he tells us who died, but there's no memorials. There's no conversations with their families. There's no, you know, we don't hear about Odysseus waking up in the middle of the night screaming and interrupting Penelope's sleep. Um, And I think those are the things we don't, we don't have the stories or myths uh, to help process those conversations, right? We don't, we've, mm-hmm. we've, as, as a species, we've, we've not held on to those stories. I know those stories are there. We just haven't held on to them in the way that we've held on to triumphant stories of hero coming home, killing everybody and going to sleep peacefully. Um, I think we've also extracted the goods we want and then left behind the mess, right? I mean, mining companies do it all the time. They take the gold, they take the silver, they leave the tailings. Oh, we're bankrupt. We can't make it anymore. And so there is a breakdown in accountability in communities across the board. And I think that's, for me, what Adventure Not War, the goal of Adventure Not War, uh, and the goal of any of my experiences in the outdoors is really to try and create these new narratives and new engagements around it. I mean, I could not, if I saw somebody with a large beard, regardless of, you know, and when I moved, when I came back to the States in 2007 was kind of the start of the, you know, we were just getting the, 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 the lumber sexual movement. and the beard movement yeah. and everything was just beginning to start. And, um, I had a hard time, right. I'd get creeped out if I saw somebody with a big beard and the individual who ran our digital print lab at the design program I attended, um, was a Muslim, is a Muslim. He's become a very good friend. But watching him do ablutions on a Friday mm-hmm. in the bathroom in the design hall when I walked in freaked me out. And you know what? He was equally as freaked out by the fact that one of the new students for the 50 cohort, the 50 student cohort, and there was one veteran and he had just come home from Iraq and it's six foot seven 
nearly 300 pound me. Terrifying. Not like, it's not like I was making his day less anxious. Right. And so, and he's a big dude too. But he knows um, what that could have, that situation could have turned into very easily. Totally. And, and then not, and not in any fault of either of you. Right. Right. And so we just had to, we acknowledged the incredible discomfort in the room. And we're like, I was like, so I get freaked out around Muslims, dude, straight up. <laughs> I just got home from Iraq and I had a lot of good friends who are Iraqi, but you know, in my head, things aren't right. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, man, I get freaked out around veterans, especially huge white dudes like you. Like, I know it's probably okay, but in my head, and then we started laughing and we were like, should we go get lunch? Are we just best friends now? Is that what just uh, happened? Yeah, like, did we oh, just, I love it. did we, <laughs> despite our stereotypes, like, are we, you know, should we make a sitcom? Um, that's kind of amazing. Are, can we acknowledge that for a second? Cause that's yeah. like, you, you had the hard conversation. You didn't, you didn't shy away from it. You didn't just walk out. I really love that. And I think people need to hear that. You can have the uncomfortable in-person conversation if you both look at it from an open, fresh perspective. It's okay to still feel those things, acknowledge that you feel those things, but don't make that be the reason that you leave or you don't, you don't interact with someone. Don't, don't be a pussy. Just have an uncomfortable conversation. Well, acknowledge an uncomfortable conversation and recognize that, hey, what I'm feeling, I don't think is right. Right. But I need to name it and I want to say it. And right. he did too. So it was good. And, and oh, Mark is, Mark's been a good friend and, you know, it's a, a great source of learning and a great source of education and support. And hopefully I've been the same for him. And I, I think it, it it's those conversations that are difficult and that, and that we have to find ways to move through. And you know, texts and digitized conversations, unless you have a pre-existing commitment mm -hmm. with the other person to have those conversations, it's just, we're just, it's not how we're going to create the world we want to create. And I don't think it's the way we're going to help the situation with the veteran community reintegrate possibly into other groups where we would like to hope and think that we could have those conversations. Um, I think everything on that's moved to online and the severity of it and just the all consuming all the time, um, it, it leaves out so much human interaction and it leaves out opportunities within those human interactions to see things the way that you just did in, in like that particular situation. And I feel like we just don't, we don't have that anymore or right now or haven't for a year. And you see that in the veteran community. I don't know what it's like as much down in the States, but in Canada, there's no group. We can't do group events with vets. We can't have the bike rides. We can't do the fundraisers. We can't be in our community and can't most of us can't be around our family little be in our own communities and then we wonder why the mental health of our communities is just dropping at a drastic rate um that kind of brings into what you were mentioning like it's been a tough year like it's been a rough year for a lot of people in a lot of different reasonings but with the vets in particular being able to do these events is really important to a lot of veterans some veterans they look forward to it it's a it's a goal if they're struggling and they really can't see getting past a certain date. There are vets out there that have that. And 
you know, I was in that position at one point and unfortunately enough, I'm not there now, but those are key things in people's lives that we have now taken away. And it kind of brings me into what I want to talk about. What's going on right now with Adventure Not War? What's going on with your ability to do outreach? And what are you seeing within the community and the mental health over the past year? Yeah. I mean, in Utah, we've been able to get out, you know, after kind of April, May timeframe of last year. And so I was driving a forklift uh, for a bike company and got and was able to get a couple bikes when nobody else could get bikes. And yeah. one of my colleagues happened to be a veteran. Uh, and and so I rode I rode bikes through the pandemic and then skied through the pandemic. We launched Happy Grizzly. We're supposed to launch Happy Grizzly last April. Um, mm -hmm. We instead launched it this January and we were able to take uh, measured risks in backcountry skiing in March. And that was great. And then we are doing another trip. We're doing a private trip in August and then we're doing another trip in September. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, if veterans sign up. I mean, we're, we're a for-profit now. Happy Grizzly is a for-profit to connect people to the outdoors. And I think, um, We've done, we did a lot of online stuff, trying to encourage people to go outside and connect over Zoom. And we were really surprised at how well that worked. And I think finding those ways and those connections and creating some intentionality around it is, is the hard part, right? And then finding the funding to do it and make sure that mm -hmm. people are compensated so that they can do it. Um, with Adventure Not War, so in 2000, so 2015 was the first trip and Alex Honnold and I went and climbed in Angola and that was awesome. It was really interesting. 2016, my daughter was born and I thought I was going to put the whole thing on hold until mm -hmm. she was much older. And my wife encouraged me, you know, said, you've got to live the life we want our daughter to live. So you need to get out there and do it. And then um, she may or may not have said, and if you don't come home, I'll be able to remarry in time that Wilder won't really notice the difference. I was like, oh, and the age, yeah, yeah, and actually who the dad is. Yeah. Exactly. So, and thankfully she looks a lot like her mom. So, although she would have been confused as to why her ears are so large, because her mom has these really cute little ears and I've got these giant Dumbo things, um, but I can hear well. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so then in 2019, um, at the end of 2018, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine that I had deployed with and he had some access to some family funds. And so he said, if I gave you, you know, what, what would you need to make your next project happen? And so I called up um, filmmaker and friend Ben Sturjalewski and I said, hey, I know we had been talking about going to Afghanistan and doing this big thing, but what if just you and I went? And so um, we said, all right, this is what it's going to cost. And so we got back to um, who I will call in this podcast, Giles Goatboy, because if he hears okay. it, he'll know who he is and everybody else will just be confused at that book unless they know Giles themselves really well. So I got back to Giles and said, this is what we want. And he gave us 80% of that. And we headed out to Afghanistan in 2019, which was really fantastic. And so now we're at a point, the pandemic and some other things have delayed that film. Um, we thought we'd make a short film, seven to 10 minute film. And um, all of the credit to Ben Sturjalewski, he's not a veteran. Max Lowe wasn't a veteran either who made the uh, adventure not war and i know ben through max and uh, ben said there's a much bigger vision and opportunity to tell a story about afghanistan here i want to go for it and so he has gone for it and we hope that uh, that film will be out um 
maybe this fall, uh, maybe next winter, we're trying to figure out where we can debut it and get the final funding for it. So I'm super stoked on that. Um, we responded when I left Afghanistan in 2019, the Afghan said, a lot of people have come here and made movies. What are you going to mm -hmm. do? Um, we want, we believe that you will give us something more than exposure. Um, so we launched Silk Road Freeride Tour, which launched in 2020 in Kyrgyzstan, came home and that shut down, which is a, to, a, a goal to grow the ski community in Central Asia and along the Silk Road. So we will aim to relaunch that in 2022. And then, yeah, we're, I'm beginning to poke around. There's two other places from my personal journey around Adventure Not War. I've done Angola, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and now we're poking around on Abkhazia and Bosnia. And Ooh. hopefully we'll be able to go back to Bosnia. A good friend of mine is Bosnian. Uh, he moved over to the States in 2005 when he was 20. We met when he was 22. He's a chef now. Um, a lot of really interesting connections. So hoping to go back and do some fly fishing in Bosnia. With That'll be the wow. focus. So the working title of that project is Rivers of Conflict. Um, we also skied with this amazing Bosnian, Ronnie, when we were in Kyrgyzstan. Ronnie's the man. So there's stuff that's still going. I would love, you know, I want to finish that project off. There's other ideas, uh, Palestine, Iran, um, there's, you know, project potential. I'd love to do some stuff with um, friends of mine who are Australian that I know throughout the years that, you know, East Timor was a brutal, brutal, violent conflict for them. I'd love to do surfing in East Timor. Um, I'd love to do something more with Canadian veterans. One of my best friends from the army ended up marrying a Canadian woman, lives in Toronto. So we have some connections there. Um, ran a lot of programs for Canadian veterans when he worked at Canadian Outward Bound. Um, so the goal really is just to, like you said, I mean, what are we doing? We're, we're just trying to find ways to encourage people to get outside. There's a generation of younger veterans doing really incredible stuff. Uh, veterans Outdoors Adventure Group, Josh Jesperson's group. Um, there's some really cool things. And I think in a lot of ways around Adventure Not War, and then specifically with the veteran community, I think my goal is to get out of the way and let the younger veterans be able to move forward. And hopefully I've provided enough platform and opportunities and maybe not opportunities, but created ideas that they can keep charging and that they'll be able to hand that off to that next generation of veterans. And we'll keep doing that. I think with Adventure Not War, you know, with Happy Grizzly being an intentional adventure company and what that means is we spend time with everybody who's coming on our trips beforehand. What do you want out of this trip physically? What do you want out of this trip emotionally? We're on the adventure with them. And then we work with folks after the trip to integrate the experience into their daily lives, right? So mm -hmm. if you and I went back to Afghanistan, for example, then what does it mean now that you have this new narrative and engagement as opposed to just dropping you off and being like, hey, hope you had a great time. And, um, you know, I, I'd love it in a couple of years. And what we're working towards is that in a couple of years, we would be able to offer these sorts of experiences to a broader community, right? I mean, right now, it's just me and maybe some of my friends, you know, like with Iraq, it was Robin and Griff and, and, and then the film crew. But to be able to go back to Kurdistan with a larger group um, and help people through that in an intentional manner, I think would be pretty amazing. Be life-changing. Yeah. I, I mean, and, and, and that's the thing, like, 
my experience in Afghanistan, from a logistics standpoint, it was the easiest trip I've ever done. Really? It was so smooth until right mm-hmm. at the end when we got stuck for a couple of days. But that had to do with weather. Mm-hmm. And everybody was awesome. Like, like we, like I could have, Kabul was, Kabul felt creepy only because I think we were supposed to feel creepy in Kabul because everybody <laughs> else, you know, but Just it was, yeah, but it was pretty chill. But in Bamiyan, I could have dropped my daughter off at the base of one of those canyons and she would have been well-fed, happy and taken care of all day long. My wife and I could have skied all day and we could have come home and picked her up and said, see you tomorrow. Really? It was so fun. I had so much fun in Afghanistan. That is, I'm sorry, that's a sentence for me. Yeah, I know, right? And like, I have a really, I have a really good buddy and I posted something a while back about how I looked forward to taking my daughter to Baghdad and like cruising around and she was, and he was like, I never want to go back to that place. And I was like, I know, I, I don't blame you. I don't blame you for not wanting to go back, but right. I just had so much fun the last time I was in Iraq. God damn, man. Okay. You could say, if somebody doesn't know the backstory to that and they're like, you're a vet and you walked up and said, I had such a great time last time I was in Iraq the looks you would get right you should so so we also had this canadian jason mannings who's a filmmaker awesome guy came with us as well and um he when ben and i flew in and jason we all flew in and we're like hanging out in the Kabul airport and all these american service members contractors are like what are you guys doing what are you, are you waiting for the bus and we're like pulling skis off and they're like what's in there and we're like skis they're like what are you doing we're like we're going skiing for a couple of weeks and they're like in afghanistan yeah yep and the guy, i remember this one guy's like so you're gonna leave the airport and we're like yep we're gonna leave the airport and um yeah it was i'm gonna survive yeah we're gonna be fine and then like you know you like touch back down in istanbul uh on the way back out and like you know I remember sitting down on the plane and somebody was like, Oh, where are you? Are you going back to the States? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, where are you coming from? And I was like, Oh, a ski trip. And they're like, Oh, did you like fly through Turkey for the Alps? And I was like, Oh no, we were skiing in Afghanistan. And at that point I might as well have been like, Hey, I have an incredibly communicable disease. If you touch me, um, <laughs> you're going to die now. Right. So they just like curled up and went to sleep in the corner. But yeah, I know the last time I was in Afghanistan and Iraq, I just had a, such a great ski vacation it makes me giggle and I'm so happy yeah I'm so happy that's the perspective you have of the countries now because it shows that it can be done it shows that it can be healed it shows that it can be more than the trauma that it gave you yeah god damn it that's a beautiful thing and that's you know and that's the thing with humanity right we have the capacity for so much horror and to put each other through so much horror and so much pain. But I think what keeps me alive is that I'm well aware of the capacity for joy. And that I think is ultimately the goal is how do we continue to expand access to and help people find real deep joy in their lives. Man, the programs you're doing, that's why, that's how, that's why, that's why you're going to continue doing it. I'm kind of blown away by a lot of your statements. I feel like um, you're on like the next level of where I'm, I'm hopefully 
on my path to. And to hear you say the love you have for those countries and those people with such conviction and the way you speak about it, the emotion it brings forth in your face is such like a beautiful, undeniable thing that I've just never quite thought a human afterwards could get to. And the, you're goddamn welcome. And the hope that that brings and just the, the opportunity for others to see that and hear that. Like, I just want my listeners to watch this episode a lot because you can't fake the way you're feeling and you can't, Mm -hmm. you can't describe your emotions the way you're, you know, the, I can't describe your emotions nearly well enough for someone to just listen to this because the the true love you just had when you spoke was so just awe-inspiring and it it actually takes the words out of my mouth and that's a rarity for me if you ask anybody who's ever been in my presence and I'm just I'm really honored to have witnessed that in another human being who's also been where I've been and where I know so many of my listeners are or are working through and the hope that you just instilled with the passion and the, the light in your words, the impact that you bring when you, when you speak about healing and how possible it actually is, it's just awe-inspiring. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, the reality too, right, is, is that there was a lot of time, and I still have times and days where it doesn't feel like you're going to get out of that cave. And it was, like you were talking about earlier, like you put a date on the calendar and look forward to it. I mean, the guy who got me out climbing was like, if you can wait a couple of weeks to kill yourself, we can go rock climbing. Right. And I was like, all right, because if I'm going to die today or in two weeks, what's the difference? Mm-hmm. And that was the moment that shifted it. But yeah, I mean, I still visit those conversations from time to time, a lot less, a lot less frequently. It's not a daily occurrence. I've gone stretches now, weeks, months without thinking about that. The pandemic plunged me back into it pretty good because everything I got built got knocked off the foundation and mm-hmm. I don't have the same sort of control or flexibility or in my schedule, but then it's like, all right, we're going to rebuild Cause when I was a kid, the most fun thing to do was to knock down all the Legos mm-hmm. and pull them all back out. And that's my life, <laughs> right? I mean, it's just, it's different Lego blocks. There's different stakes, right? Um, but I think the other thing too, that's been really important with that is um, finding people who aren't veterans that I can trust and engage and he'll look at me as a human. And there was a moment, thanks to my buddy Ryan Dunphy, three or four years ago in a cabin in the White Mountains in New Hampshire, and we're getting ready to go ski Tuckerman, Tuckerman's Ravine off of Mount Washington the next day. And I looked around and I realized I was the only person in the room who was a veteran. I was the only person in the room who was in long-term recovery. And I felt at peace and I felt taken care of and I felt supported and cared for and loved. And I wouldn't have got there if it wasn't for a lot of loving and caring veterans of all ages who 
showed me and let me know it was possible and held me, physically held me when I didn't think it was possible. And as I think about some of those men and women, because in the veteran community, for me, it was men who oftentimes helped me, men who were willing to be vulnerable and open, especially from the Vietnam generation of men, Robert Himber and Barry Bear specifically. And in the non-military community in the outdoor industry, it was women like Ann Kerchick and Nora Stoll and Mona who picked me up. And what I wish is that the men outside of the military community and more men inside the military community too could see the value of openness and vulnerability and sharing the emotion. Um, because it was that mix. And I don't know if I ever would have thought it would have been that mix of people and kind of even gender distribution who would help me out. But um, it was the women who weren't afraid of my pain in the outdoor industry who engaged and saw something bigger than what I could see in myself. And it was the older men and women, Heidi Baruch, also Vietnam era veteran, my great aunt Mildred, World War II veteran, who knew that healing was possible. So it takes all, it takes everybody, right? Like there is, I've just come to believe there's no hero's journey here. You can't make it back to the shores of Ithaca by yourself. You take the village. Yeah. It takes a lot of villages. It takes all the village idiots to come together to pick you up. Okay. Because you've been That's picked not, up. That's not fair to the idiots. <laughs> it's not fair to the idiots, but we're going to say it anyway. Yeah. But it, it, it takes it takes a lot. It doesn't just take a lot. It takes also staying the course too, right? You you put a lot of credit on a lot of people. Yeah. But it but takes you, staying the course. You got to do the work. You got to do the work. How to do the work. You know, and it's like, even with the outdoor programs, it's like we have you know, and this is where we struggled in a lot of the outdoor programs. We got people to that aha moment and then we left them alone and you've got to get to that aha moment and it opens the door, but then you've got to help people walk through and then you've got to keep going and you've got to keep engaging and, you know, you got to do the work. You can't just feel, you know, the transformation isn't just all of a sudden I feel better and I had the somatic experience. It's like now you got to do the hard, hard yards and um, those conversations, and um, and then you got yeah, and then you got to keep having fun. You certainly got to have find ways to have fun. And I think this pandemic is going to have long term ramifications on global oh, mental health. It's it's and it's going to be shown um, in our children in a way. If I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, it's going to show in our children. It's already showing in our children. Um, what I'm seeing on a mass scale of just the like local community and the children and the reaction and the reactionary parents that are putting adult issues and 
trauma onto these young children and expecting them to not only handle it, but act as if it's not affecting them in a deeper, more destructive way. Um, I'm truly concerned for how we are going to handle the lifelong trauma that we have inflicted and the long-term effects and financial burden it is going to put on not only individual families, but also on our governments based on their inadequate and uneducated decision-making right. policy. Yeah, I think, yeah, 100%. I mean, I, there's a few books that I've read this year that have been super helpful. One is It Didn't Start With You, which is a book about intergenerational trauma. Mm -hmm. And I think there is an opportunity in the pandemic if we can create space for people to engage around intergenerational trauma and begin to recognize the conscious and mostly unconscious patterns that we have adopted from our parents or grandparents or other people in the family system to break that trauma and break those cycles. And I think the hard part about any time, like going back to what we said earlier about the veteran community is like when you, you know, if you think about your family or the veteran community as a big mobile, right? And then somebody starts to do something different and they begin to adjust or change or they begin to heal, what everybody else sees is somebody really rocking the boat, right? Mm -hmm. And so they become the problem, mm -hmm. even though they're trying to heal themselves. And I think you see this in larger social challenges where individuals who are standing up and saying, look, I'm here, I've always been here. I'm just no longer to smash myself up against the wall when you walk by. Now everybody else thinks that that group or individual is causing problems, but all they're doing is claiming their right to walk, their, their right to exist. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a lot of times where veterans, you know, are seen as, well, you're the problem. Well, and so I think we have an opportunity to engage around breaking those cycles of intergenerational trauma, but the notion of therapy being acceptable is really only just beginning with our generation of veterans. Right. Right. And so it's going to take a while and it's not going to move fast enough. And there's going to be a lot of carnage that happens between now and then. And then the second one, I think that has been really interesting and opened my mind up to a lot of things is drug use for adults. And I think really beginning to question why are so many substances not legal if they do give people respite from the pain and challenge of their daily life, I think as somebody who's been through substance abuse, I can't really blame the substance for why. I mean, the substance, the reason I was addicted to the substance was because the substance made me feel good mm -hmm. or eliminated pain when nothing else could. Right. So why not work to restructure the system that made me hurt so bad as opposed to take away the one thing that felt good and why not make it easier for me to ensure that I don't get something that makes me feel good. That's messed up with something that could kill me. Decriminalization. So, yeah. Not just decriminalization, legalization. Oh, Oh, a hundred percent. I, I am, I am yeah. 150% on board with what you're talking about right now. And, and I don't, my use is incredibly minimal, right? Um, of, and the only thing I use at the moment is alcohol from time to time. Mm -hmm. And 
I think abstinence is a very powerful tool, by the way, if people need to use abstinence, if people want to use abstinence as a lifelong tool because they're concerned about substance abuse or falling back into those patterns, hey, go for it. Use the tools that are available. Right. But let's let's make sure that all the tools are available. We're grown adults. We should be able to choose what we put in our body. And if they talk about freedoms and someone says are you actually truly free? Are you actually a truly free human being? No, we are not. We are told what we can and cannot put in our bodies based on false premise and science that is ineffective. Right. And, you know, my day job requires Mm -hmm. specific decisions and I abide by and respect those decisions that my employer asked me to make. And I will continue to abide by and respect those decisions. And it's not a place for me to push back on my employer but right. I also think, and, and I don't think anybody should, you know, if you're at work, you need to be present, but think about, I don't know. It's, it's a, I do know, but or mm-hmm. I think I know. So, I mean, those are the things I think about with my military experience, right. And coming home. That's what I think about is like, Hey, if I could understand the generational trauma, that would help me better understand how to deal with the impact trauma from my military. And B, if I wasn't so frightened of incarceration and deeper issues by using drugs that were the only thing that felt available to me at the time that could minimize mm-hmm. or erase the pain or help me get through the day, I probably would have used those drugs even less. Mm-hmm. It's because it you don't need we don't need to be told what we can and cannot do because I've had this conversation several times with a lot of veterans. At some point, we need to be able to use the things and tools that are available to us in order to save ourselves from ourselves sometimes. There is no, and I believe there's nothing wrong or nothing correction. I believe there's nothing more wrong than a person who is struggling and feels so, so down and feels like they have no other way to achieve any sort of relief, but to go and get themselves something that in order for them to actually get would then turn them into a criminal. It's, it's a really um, difficult topic for a lot of people, but I'm one of those very open books when it comes to that. I struggle watching things like psilocybin being still criminal criminal and still be punishable by prison time when other states and other countries are studying it and finding such amazing results in healing and antidepressants are horrible for a body, but somehow we allow those to be given in just droves by the numbers shoved down our veterans' throats. But if someone were to eat a mushroom out of the ground and it was the only thing that gave them relief, they would then go to prison. Totally. Yeah. And I think it's, yeah. And that's the thing, right? Is that a lot of the drugs that are given or that I used from a legal perspective were incredibly damaging and Mm -hmm. made me feel worse and limited my social engagement when I needed to be building community. 
And I'm not saying that I was a responsible drug user all the time at all by any stretch of the term, but I also have not been a responsible alcohol user by any stretch of the term multiple times and was totally, that was totally acceptable, if not encouraged behavior. And so, yes. and the number of people I know who use drugs to great impact and are incredible, committed, hardworking people who love their families and their communities veteran or not, is legion. It is legion. Oh, yes. And and I think that's one of the things, you know, I think about like, what are the two things that we can do to best support our veterans? What are the two things I think we can do to best support our broad community? How do we move away from this era of polarization and pain and anger and hate with one another? And it is break cycles of trauma, allow people the freedom to use the substances they choose to use and yeah, create more access and opportunities for people to engage in the outdoors and outdoor recreation. Those would be the three biggest things. And I think if we could get to those things, there'd obviously be pain and challenges and we're seeing the overuse of our parks right now and our national parks, but that just speaks to me to the fact that we need more parks and we need to reorganize how we live and engage with how we live and movement is gonna come naturally when you encourage people to go to beautiful places. They'll find their way into healthy ways and enjoyable ways for them to move their body. Um, And when people are having fun moving their bodies, all sorts of other benefits happen. And there are Mm -hmm. lots of different ways to get people to have fun moving their bodies. And sometimes an additional substance for some people makes that amazing. Some people, they just need to hear a great blue bat, a great bluegrass band, and they'll move their bodies in that fun way. So let's let's let that happen, and let's find ways to build and develop joy, as opposed to continuing to focus on being worried that somebody somewhere else is having more fun than you. So we need to stop them. We need to stop being concerned about everyone else and just focus on what we can do to heal our own people and heal ourselves. And I think, Stacy. I'm going to end it there because I have never been so intrigued in a conversation where I have been that just wowed by a guest. I'm not going to lie to you, Stacey. Dude, you got, you got, you got uh, perspective. You've got healing. You bring light. You bring so much light, my dude. I don't even know that you realize it. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. This has been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed this. We've gone to some places I haven't been to for a while. So I appreciate the, I appreciate going there. Good. Well, I'm glad. I mean, that's, that's all I can ever hope for. I try to give space for you to work it out and just, you know, know that, you know, my listeners, we, this is what, this is what they love. They love honesty and they love raw. And I am more than, you know, more than thrilled to have had this conversation but i'm i'm excited that one day we get to have this conversation again and hear more and more about your incredible film what that looks like when that's coming out how that's going to be um but really more for just being able to meet the person who's brought so much joy and hope to the veteran community um every single initiative that you seem to bring forth 
has brought better and better perspective, understanding, healing, and openness to our community, but not only that, but to the civilian population and really giving them the guide and the bridge to have that conversation with a vet or even just enjoy being around somebody without having to wonder how many people they killed. So to yeah, me exactly. that, yeah, or a goddamn great response in the, instead. But I just, Faithy, I want to thank you for your time. Can you please tell everybody your, all your social handles? Yeah, thank you so much for your time. I mean, I encourage people to follow along at happygrizzlyadventures.com and then Insta is Stacey A. Bear, S-T-A-C-Y-A-B-A-R-E. And yeah, I mean, I like so many with social media, it's a, it's a, it's a love-hate relationship, but I do have a right. good time with it. I try to have a good time with it. Yeah, and then, you know, as things open up, um, I guess we'd probably be out to about next spring, but maybe next spring we can come up, come on up to Canada and do a screening of the Afghan film and come up. get you guys out. We're going to be in big Bend. We have a, we have two trips coming up for folks and we, for happy grizzly, we do do a sliding scale of things. If people think they can't afford it, they should get in touch. Cause oftentimes we have people who make it easy for people to engage. But we'll be on Gates of Lador, which is outside of Vernal, Utah and dinosaur national monument. And then I tell you what, if you can make it down to Texas with us in December, big Bend national park, it's one of my favorite places in the entire world. One of my favorite places to go is just sliding through the Rio Grande Valley, sliding through those canyons and some of the darkest skies you've ever seen. And it's a wonderful place. So we'll just keep trying to get other people outside and connect and appreciate you and your message and spreading the joy and the love. And um, yeah, to all the Canadian listeners out there, especially those who served, it's been an absolute honor and privilege to, to serve with the Canadian military. And uh, one of your own is sitting there in the heart as is his family. And um, yeah. So thank you. Thank you, Stacy, And uh, to the rest of the listeners. Oh, that was a good one. I'll see y'all next week. <laughs>